Welcome to the Wilds cast. In this episode, Rabbi Wilds interviews Thane Rosenbaum. Thane is an American novelist, essayist, and distinguished university professor. He's the director of the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, hosted by Toro College. He's also the legal analyst for CBS News Radio and appears frequently on cable television news programs. Okay, we are live. Welcome to the Wildscast MGE's podcast. Uh, I am honored to host uh, this afternoon Thane Rosenbaum. Um, <clears throat> hails from uh, Miami Beach, Florida originally. And for those of you who may be unfamiliar with Thane, uh, he got his master's in public administration from Columbia, JD from the University of Miami. And uh, he has been a professor at Fordham Law School and a visiting professor at my alma mater at Cardoza School of Law. Also, by the way, Thane went to Columbia School of International Public Affairs. So we have a similar similar background, except for the rabbi part, I guess. And uh, <laughs> Big difference, uh, Mark. <laughs> a little different. I don't know, just a little. But uh, Thane has interviewed a uh, – before he did this, by the way, he was uh, clerked for an honorable – uh, Eugene Spellman was an associate in litigation department of Debevoise and Plimpton. He's got an unbelievable resume, but he's also interviewed some incredible celebrities, including the former president, Bill Clinton, uh, Governor Jeb Bush, Israeli ambassador Michael Oren, and survivor and author Elie Wiesel. Uh, he is, in my estimation, one of the best Jewish journalists alive today. He's also a university professor at Turo and a legal analyst for CBS News Radio. There's other stuff here, but we want to get right to a conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Thing. Of course, Rabbi. <clears throat> so before we get <clears throat> to some of your amazing work, um, you wrote a very powerful column in the Jewish Journal about what's going on in Afghanistan. <clears throat> and of course, this has taken the world by shock. Maybe it shouldn't have been. Um, you wrote an article called, Has Anyone Told the Terrorists That the War Is Over? Um, we're stunned with the speed of the Taliban takeover. We were told it was highly unlikely and maybe it would take a year. Um, and you wrote in your article, terrorists think in terms of centuries, not news cycles. Can you elaborate on this and tell us a little what you think the impact is uh, on the world, the United States? And I'm also curious about Israel. Well, let me back up. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on your program. Everybody talks about this program, so I wanted to be on it as well. So, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Um, well, since you, I can, I can back into that by discussing just starting with Israel, which is that this is exactly what the Palestinians think. Um, they have a Taliban view of the world, which is that, you know, the Westerners, people from, you know, the United States, we always say, why would you want to live in refugee camps for the rest of your life and your children or grandchildren? And they're saying, what's wrong with you American Jews that you can't one generation, two generations? How about a hundred generations? We don't care. We'll have my great, 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 great grandchildren could live and sit on this box and have a keychain of a house that they'll never get back in Yaffa. And I don't care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it means nothing to me. We don't need them. We don't need to. I don't want my family to win Nobel Prizes. I don't want I don't have any interest in a state. I just don't want there to be a Jewish state. Mm -hmm. And I will wait until this Stuart Jewish state comes to an end because eventually it will. Now, I know this sounds insane. And the problem is that there, you know, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a politically incorrect 
expression on this. You know what it means? Israelis eventually had to adopt, we can't let the Arabs out crazy us. Great line. You know, we can't get their insanity to beat us because they're, they're willing to do this. They're willing to sacrifice their generations. And so, you know, the Taliban simply believed as Hamas believes, as Fatah believes, that it doesn't matter how long it takes. We're not in a hurry. You know, our, it's our world, our religion is about the afterlife, and it doesn't make a difference what happens here. And we'll wait. Wow. We'll wait. And so I think that's the answer to the Taliban. They, they, they look at 20 years, and they know the United States can't take it. And the Taliban says we can go 200 years just like this. So how, how do we how do we get? It's it's interesting. You you're I wouldn't say you're matter of fact about it, but you clearly <clears throat> see the difference between that mentality. Um, I, I think how do you get Westerners us to um, put our, you know wrap our arms around that ideology? Like we're so convinced that if you give people enough money, yeah, in a decent life, <laughs> yeah. they will take that over. Yeah. But that's yeah. not the case. Well, remember <laughs> Donald Trump's peace to prosperity plan, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr Donald Trump was not a diplomat. He was not a seasoned governmental leader. He was a real estate guy. You know, he knows he knows how to give. A, if you give a person a month concession, they'll come and take a rent a rental in your building because you get a month off, right? He's so does Jared Kushner. That's how they think. Right. They created a plan. <clears throat> That was based entirely on around 60 to 60 billion dollars of development for the Palestinians. And they didn't even show up to the meeting. They didn't right. actually show up. What is 60 billion dollars to? They don't care. So Donald Trump, I think, was shocked, or, or his son-in-law was shocked. He's going, who doesn't care about 60 billion dollars? The Palestinians. <laughs> They're not interested. It doesn't, they won't, if it means that they have to live beside Jews. If there are going to be actual living Jews beside, that's just intolerable. So I think, look, we saw this in the Obama administration. President Obama had very little experience in, frankly, anything. Uh, and, and he believed on the strength of his charisma. And if you talk to people like you talk to them in the faculty lounge, <laughs> they'll, they'll say yes to anything. Right. You know, right. And, and that's the problem when you say, what can we do? We can't do anything. People live in their own worlds, and they absolutely assume that the way our family would resolve it is the way, you know, I remember um, I did an, one of those interviews that we were talking about, I did with Ayan Hirsi Ali, mm -hmm. a Somalian refugee who was a, became a legislator in Holland and has a, a death threat, a fatwa on her head. You know, she's a Muslim woman. If your audience don't know her, you, she's written a number of books, mm -hmm. Ayan Hirsi Ali. You know, she, there's a death threat on her because she's a Muslim woman who has been honest about, you know, Islam, about as as a religion towards women and homosexuals. And so uh, she, I remember in the audience, she we were at the 92nd Street Y and she said, you know, you think you, you think like if you compromise with people that that they see that in good faith. And he said, it's foolish to not understand that the Iranians see compromise as weakness. Right. And so she was trying to explain, and they looked at her like she was out of her mind. Of course, people, when they see, 
compromise, they think now's my invitation to cooperate. And you're saying, here's a world you don't understand. It's not yeah, a world. That, that's why I've always had these conversations with my Sephardi friends as opposed to my Ashkenazic friends. They, my Sephardic <laughs> friends totally, they always make fun of me. They make fun of our yes. <laughs> their white, their white Jewish brothers uh, who who are just don't get the mentality. It's a different, different mentality. So what does it mean? I mean, it happened so quickly. Um, what does it mean for Israel? Well, you know, remember, I, the one last anecdote I would tell you that fits to what you just said is what happened, not this last Gaza war, but the one in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, President Obama insisted that Netanyahu and Hamas in, enter into a ceasefire with the hope of ending so Netanyahu didn't want to. Finally, he agreed. And that night, uh, three terrorists or something came through a terror tunnel and an Israeli soldier was killed. And I'll never forget what Netanyahu said. He, he, you know, he said, never again when I will let someone who doesn't know anything about this region tell me what to do, because what would happen easily if it's a ceasefire, it's in good faith. Who would who would drink mm -hmm. a ceasefire? Well, you know, Hamas would. He wouldn't even think twice about it. They would think it's foolish that you would believe that I would accept a ceasefire. So, look, the problem is that Israel, to its, to its credit, recognizes, as they should, if your kids don't fight in the IDF, shut up. <laughs> I've, I, I have to tell you, I, I so appreciate that. Um, Shut the hell up! Yeah, really. Who yeah. are you talking? Who the hell right. are you talking to me? Right. You live in Aventura, right. the biggest. You've never traveled. You've never go anywhere other than to the Aventura yeah. Mall. Yeah, this I is what you do. Yeah. You don't. You've never traveled anywhere. You don't read any books. The only thing you know how to do is renovate a kitchen. And you've got an opinion about what we should do here. I mean, you can have an opinion. You can you can share what you no, want. No, I don't think you but should have an opinion. I really don't. I feel very mm -hmm. strongly. It's mm -hmm. called respect. Mm -hmm. Just respect. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're talking about. Right. You know, we, we have this idea that, you know, everyone. No, I actually don't agree with that. I think you earn an opinion. Well, you look, you, you can have a conversation with other people in Aventura about <clears throat> what's going on. But your opinion doesn't count if you if you don't live there, fight in the army, serve in the, you know, and 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 get the vote, you know, yeah. in or out. Yeah. Um, but but tell us a little about, um, first of all, just for our viewers, what is the Taliban's relationship with Iran, and 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 um, how does this affect our brothers and sisters in Israel? Well, you, as this we know, the, take, the takeover specifically. Well, you know, as we know, you know, uh, Iran is the chief sponsor of terrorism around the world. Mm -hmm. It's not yes, the nuclear weapons is a problem, but what I have always said, it's their pr promiscuous foreign policy. It's the, their, the mischief that they make. Just look in the region, Yemen, Syria, Hezbollah, and Lebanon, uh, militias in Iraq. You know, they were like creating this mastermind pathway on the way to Israel, a pathway of menace, mayhem, corruption, violence, misogyny. You know, I mean, just a disaster. And this is the thing, of course, President Obama couldn't envision this. He couldn't envision anything other than, wouldn't it be nice to make a deal with the mullahs, right? I mean, wouldn't, be, wouldn't it be amazing if I could make any deal with the mullahs? It doesn't make a difference what it says. So the answer is anytime terrorists have been emboldened anywhere, but certainly in the North Africa, Persian Gulf, in the Middle East, Iran is there. Yeah. Even, even, even if they're not Shiites, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, what they're, they're, as much as they have problems with Sunnis, they don't say we're going to blow a Sunni country off the map. Right, right. They, even they, though, they, even though the Sunni countries are a little nervous about them, which yes, I, exactly, which helped right. inspire the uh, Abrahamic Accords. No but, question, no but, question. But, um, but you're saying, you know, to, to, you know, to continue to marginalize and isolate Israel, they'll work with anyone. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. To them, this is a victory. Uh, they would see the Afghans, you know, Afghans uh, uh, secular go- as a secular government, even though it's not. They would regard it as too friendly to the West, too beholden to the United States, too capable of caving in like the other Abrahamic countries did. The yeah. Taliban won't. You know, the Taliban again, like everything. The the you know the the Muslim Brotherhood is the mother, you know, is the mothership of everything. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, people don't realize how this is what people talk about. What is Hamas? Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so it's the it's the mothership for everything. It's the the creation of political Islam. It's where Islam became its own politics. Some of that has to do with uh, Muhammad himself as a prophet who was both a general and a prophet. We don't have that in Judaism. <laughs> Christianity doesn't have that. You know, you, Islam is unique in that way. That, uh, but I do think that, right, the, the instability now in, in uh, Afghanistan is not good for Israel. It's not good for the United States, but it's certainly not good for Israel because it just creates, remember, the airfield alone, Bagram, was gold, <laughs> was gold. Why would anyone give them back that? It was gold. You know, that's where, you know, when we, when we assassinated Osama bin Laden, you know where mm-hmm. we started? Bagram. <laughs> we, we didn't fly out of Washington, D.C., right? We right. were right there. And instead, we, we left and we left them all this equipment that they now have, weaponry that we those hope. Pictures, those pictures are so disturbing. Yeah. Um, do, do you, I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I mean, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, what, or, or in your mind, what needs to happen? Um, you know, Look, to... I'm, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please, please. Look, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm always an outlier in everything I say. <laughs> so your audience should be prepared. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, I, I have no interest, I, you know, I don't, I have no interest in saying what everyone else says. No, I'm interested. That's yeah. why we're interviewing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. No, I'm interested I, I, in hearing what you have to say. Look, I'm, uh, you know, I'm old school. I think the United States needs to stand for stuff, mm-hmm. right? That if, if you know, I do think the United States, what's the point of being a superpower unless you're going to stand up for humanitarian purposes? Yeah. Yeah. If, if you know, I remember I was one of the few people that said, Saddam Hussein needed to be killed whether he had nuclear weapons or not. Right, right. Well, and I remember giving speeches at the time, and I said he killed, I forgot, was it 10,000 or 30,000 Kurds? And I, this is what I said. I remember this because people looked at me like I was insane. He says, and I think the number was 250 women were beheaded because their Iraqi husbands accused them of infidelity. And I said, where are the feminists here? I right. want to know. I want to know where are the feminists on this? 250 women lost their heads. They weren't even stoned. They were beheaded. This guy needed to be taken out, and it was our job to do it. I could care less. You know, it's interesting that that unless you can make a case 
that there were weapons of mass destruction. Exactly. Everybody thinks it was an immoral war. Of course. Because weapons of mass destruction then demonstrate a need to send troops. You're saying on the purely moral front, of course. the United States as a superpower has a responsibility to yes. take out bad people, yes. even if those bad people are not killing our own, but they're yes. beheading, beheading their own. Otherwise, there's no virtue, right? There's no and, virtue. And, and, it's, and, self, it's an act of self-preservation. It's simply saying we're worried about your nuclear weapons. We don't trust you, nor should we. But I think that you don't need that. You, there was enough reasons. Look, we've we've allowed all kinds of, you know, uh, you know, uh, we, we it took six years for to arrest warrant on Bashir for his genocide in Darfur. Mm -hmm. Right. We let mass murderers off the hook all the time. And I, I've always felt like, you know, if you're going to be the United States, you should be standing for something. And, and what, so, do you say, what do you say to those that you're going, that attitude is noble, but it will embroil us in endless conflicts throughout the world. We'll have a Vietnam after Vietnam. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I know, I understand that. Look, the way we're headed, we are losing our superpower status anyway. So if you bring me back in a year, I'll say, well, you know, remember what I told you, Rabbi? <laughs> we're not, we don't have that responsibility anymore. It's now right. China's business. You know, we have Barack Obama made it very clear. He was opposed to American exceptionalism. I was very embarrassed that he used those words. Right. I remember right. when he said, I don't believe in American exceptionalism more than other countries believe in their exceptional. And then he mentioned Greece. And I thought, well, actually, the Greeks just defaulted on all, you know, this is a bankrupt country. No, actually, I don't think the Greeks feel that there's America, that there's Greek exceptionalism. What are you talking about? Right. We're not in the same position of Greece. And, and but but it's only because we're stronger. You're saying, yeah. in other words, and and with great power comes great responsibility. Yes. You're, I mean, it's the Spider-Man theme. And even if it means, because this is the hard part. This is the rub, and this is what our generation, this this current generation, is just doesn't have the stomach for. You know, um, getting embroiled in foreign conflicts, but you feel. That, that because America has um, this power, it has that responsibility, even if it means committing troops aboard, boots on the ground. I mean, you do it in a smart way, obviously. Uh, well, let me just say in a smart way, I, I think, uh, look, I'm, I did not serve in the American. I, again, I'm a very I'm very honest about things like this. Mm -hmm. Again, it's, I don't know if I'm entitled to an opinion here. OK, mm -hmm. I did not serve in any military forces. I respect people that do. I have no access to intelligent briefings from the Pentagon. So let me just say I'm not like the people from Aventura. I'm sorry. I sound I'm beating up on them for no reason. Mm -hmm. I could pick another. We'll pick a, we'll pick a mall in Los Angeles. <laughs> right. I'm saying, I just want to say I don't know. But my understanding is and I said this yesterday on um, on uh, blue, uh, what is it? Uh, Sky News Arabia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On Sky News Arabia, I said, "Look, it seems to me that the Afghan security forces would still have control if we just kept our air air support. Mm -hmm. If we just simply kept all our pilots and sent reconnaissance missions to defending uh, Afghan security forces with air power. This is what we did in Syria." Right. We didn't really have boots on the ground. We had right. planes in the air. Right. So it, so it's not an all or nothing. It's not like we have yeah. to, you know, you do it in a smart way, just like yeah. when Israel has to defend herself. She tries as much as possible not to have to send in troops, you know, use the Air Force and so on and so forth. But 
But um, okay, well, let me listen. just go back to the one yeah. last. But it's it's not just what I would say the principle of American virtue and, and and what exceptionalism means. But I also think you know we again Arab countries, Arab people speak in terms think in terms of centuries, not news cycles. And our country, we have the worst of memory recall of any nation on earth. <laughs> as far as we, we have no sense of anything. I, I can't believe it. I think today, you know, it was 20 years from 9-11. Yeah. I don't think people think about this at all. Even the Boston Marathon bombing. This is why when I wrote that essay, I was saying, look out. Because when if Macy's gets blown up in six months, we'll remember this day. Yeah. Remember the day that you felt so complacent that the Arab world's the war on terror that their insistence on caliphates, their attacks on infidels, you know, on apostates, you know, that this is, this, the, the terrorism did not end. There was no declared winner. And I'm not confident that we are protecting ourselves, defending ourselves, you know, in, in the way that's necessary. And I, I'm, you know, I, I, I you know. Yeah. I, I what, would you, should, what, what would you say to a mother who lost a son fighting in Afghanistan because I remember 20 years ago 9/11 how many people enlisted yeah um, in the United States Army Ivy League graduates yeah okay um, some of them now are United States senators right <laughs> I mean I think Tom Cotton yeah. was one I mm-hmm. think Ben Sa- I mean there's a number of them yeah. who who ended up as now as you in US senators look I I think that you you know I I, I never pass a a, a man or a woman in uniform and not thank them for their service. Yeah. And, you know, I have never not done that. My children all see me. I will run across the street to thank them because I never had to do that. And I'm grateful uh, that they have. So yes, what would I say? I'm sorry for the loss of the blood and treasure and as well as what's happened to your son. And that now you have to be a mother wondering what was that for? Yeah, I think it's a good question that we should be asking. But no one wants to ask that question because yeah. it's uncomfortable. And, and let me ask you this. You're, you're the child of Holocaust survivors. Do you feel this, what you just said, where's the virtue, American exceptionalism? We have to use our, you know, um, our power responsibly. We can't just, you know, uh, have a foreign policy that's based on simply national interest. Is this coming? Are you, were you influenced by... By your own background, what your parents went through in the Shoah? I, I think so. I mean, you know, it's a strange question. For me, it's a strange question because my parents never spoke about their Holocaust experiences. Mm-hmm. I started, you know, writing novels that had sort of post-Holocaust themes, but I, they really were novels because my parents never spoke about I learned more about them when they died. I, they died when I was young, and I learned more about them after they died from others who knew them. Um, so I don't know. It's hard to know what, what has been driving me. I have been a, a human rights law professor now for nearly 35 years, and that's how I self-identify as, uh, I'm not really a lawyer, I'm a, I'm a human rights law professor. Right. Um, but I would say that, yes, I, I, you know, I, I consider myself a liberal, not a progressive, a liberal, mm-hmm. uh, but, but also I have neoconservative tendencies when it comes to American patriotism and American exceptionalism. I'm not embarrassed of America's involvement in the world. I'm proud of it. Right. And, I, and I've, I've always been proud of it. And I think of, again, you know, and I wish, I, I, yes, I'm aware that my parents, you know, Franklin Roosevelt did not come to the aid of Holocaust survivors. 
So right. it's not like we should always think of America as doing the right things. They sometimes do the wrong things, but but it's still far and away the best country in the world. <laughs> and, it, and it's not even close, which is why it's for me personally painful. And I've written a lot about this. You know, to me, what I when I see the Black Lives Matter movement and critical race theory and intersectionality, what I find most outrageous about it is this lack of respect and patriotism. So where do you, let, let, let's talk about that a little. And by the way, I forgot to tell all of our viewers that Thane has authored nine books, some fiction, nonfiction, so it's, which is pretty unbelievable. What, 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 um, where do you think this is? I mean, you mentioned three, intersectionality, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. You, you mentioned that all three seem to have this lack of, uh, I don't know if it's patriotism or lack of, what would you say is the common denominator in terms of, their relationship with this great country, with America, white oppression, mm -hmm. right? White oppression is the is the is where the rubber meets the road for them, right? That if you're white, you probably are guilty, and if you're a person of color, you pretty much have automatic virtue. So you should be speaking, and the white person should be listening. This is exactly what happened to the Jewish women who were co-founders of the Women's March. Remember after soon yeah, people yeah. don't remember. I love this anecdote I've written about. It. It's my one of my favorite ones. It's very telling. Uh, there were four women who in who created the Women's March uh, that coincided with the Trump uh, inauguration. Uh, two there was two Jewish women, uh, and there was an African American and a Muslim. Uh, and after this successful march, they had met, uh, met again to decide what's our next move. What should we do next? How do we mobilize this movement? And the Jewish women were shocked to learn on that day that they were told to shut up. You're white, you're Jewish, your families were involved in the slave trade. You should be listening to us and stop talking. And the women left. Wow. The, two, the two women are no longer the founders. Now, again, I'm one of the few people that keeps reminding people of that anecdote. It's a great anecdote. It tells you what they're thinking, right? Wow. What they're, what's in their heart? It's an amazing thing because you, you just identified yourself as not a progressive, but a liberal. Oh, I am a liberal. I, I, uh, yeah. I mean, people are su surprised when they, I'm a liberal. Look, to be liberal, Rabbi, is to be open. Right. <laughs> at its core, if you look at the original writings of the liberals that are behind the, the enlightenment of the late 18th century, one of the things that Locke, Rousseau, and Hume, and Kant all shared and you know all jefferson all shared in common is openness yeah. and what we see today in black lives matter critical race race theory intersectionality is closed you there is it's all about shouting people down censoring people demonizing people canceling people yeah. look look at its ethos its ethos is never that's an interesting perspective let me take a week and settle think about that it's you are moral, morally beyond the pale. That is, that is the world that we're living in now. If you don't agree with us, you are morally beyond the pale and you need to be canceled. You need to be, you have to go. And there's nothing liberal about that, which is why I always joke. I say, you know, there's nothing liberal about those movements. They're, they're anti-democratic and illiberal. They're fascistic. Don't be, don't be, don't be confused by the word progressive. Don't be confused by the Green New Deal or their skin color. They're, they're fascists. I don't know people like that. The people that I know who are liberal are saying, 
I'm prepared to have a conversation with right, you. Right, with someone with whom I disagree. You know, yeah. I, I keep, I, I've been, um, I blogged about this a while ago. Like I just, it was almost like a joke. Can you imagine the Talmud? <laughs> if, if, can you imagine how many people would get canceled yeah. because they were expressing an opposing point I love of that. view? Great. And I'll tell you the other thing you could, I don't know if you could use this, but um, I love the fact that, you know, probably there's there's a group of sages that are known to be arguing with each other consistently. One of them was Abayi and Shammai. There's um, Hillel, uh, and, um, Hillel and Rava. And what's really amazing is that um, is that whenever their disagreements are recorded in the Talmud, they're never between Shammai and Hillel, Abaye and Rava. They're Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai, which means the house of, which yes. is another way of saying the academy. Yes, it's like another way of saying that they're arguing, they're debating mm-hmm. vehemently on some very fundamental issues, hmm. but they're colleagues. Yeah. And they're having conversations with each other. And I don't know if I ever told you, I had the, uh, I really considered an honor of interning many years ago for the late and great Senator Patrick Daniel Moynihan. I love him. Um, oh, he was an extraordinary figure. Um, and a major, actually, and a major public intellectual. Had he, he was, not even been a Senator. I mean, he, he's someone who I look upon with such level of reverence because that's the kind of life I wanted to live. A life of books and ideas. Anyway, go yeah. ahead. No, he was, he was incredible, but I used to see, first of all, he was uh, the irony of ironies. He was the one when he was the United Nations representative from the United States to defeat the Zionism as racism uh, yes. proposal in the United Nations, <clears throat> a, a liberal. And, you know, today that's kind of like unheard of. And, but I used to see him surrounded by, not surrounded, but often having conversations with people on the other side of the political aisle. Such respect, such regard. They were focused on the issue. Of course. I, I actually put this, I wrote a, a book called The 40-Day Challenge, 40 Different... I heard about that. Oh, yes. thank you. So one of them yeah. is called Play the Ball, Not the Person. Because when I used to play <laughs> basketball... Yeah. yeah, I get it. My coach used to say, stop paying attention to the person. He's trying to figure out, yeah, yeah, keep yeah. your eye on the ball. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, the question is, how can we teach a generation to focus on the ball and not the person and not to personalize the debate, the argument, so that you become so angry at the person that you don't want to talk to him anymore? You know, yeah. you, we lose all respect for people that, that are, are, are upholding opposing views. How are you supposed to grow? I mean, how are you supposed to develop a sophisticated outlook on on the world when you just surround yourself with people that you know, agree with you. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, please. I mean, I was just going to say, I'm often wrong, Rabbi. So, so I, I, you know, I, I'm often wrong. And I, I was, I remember being in Israel maybe 10 years ago and saying, we really shouldn't worry about the BDS movement. We really shouldn't worry about, you know, what was in the beginning of these, the, 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 what was the early phases of critical race theory that people saw come because I thought it was confined to the universities. I thought, and not even good universities. That was literally what I thought, right? Not even the good ones. Cal State Fullerton is where the Students for Justice in Palestine was. I big, remember that, yeah. Right, that's where they were being. Was like, you know, all right, fine. That you know, mm-hmm. that's where they are. Good, good, good luck to you. Now they're in Berkeley, Harvard, and Yale. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, now they're not in universities. They've graduated, and they're at the New York Times. I did not believe that. I believed. You graduate from college, you know, I mean, look, I've been a, in academia for many years, but I don't think of myself as a professor. 
because I'm, again, I think of myself as a public intellectual like Moynihan, who's outside the university. I don't have a lot of respect for professors. You know, I, I just don't. I, I just, it's such, I, a, it's such, it's such a catastrophe because college is costing more and more. Yeah. And the education is certainly in the social sciences, the humanities have just gone down and it's, I don't know. I, I don't need And it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's I have, two kids in college and it's expensive, man. Yeah. And uh, you want to know, you want to believe that they're getting the classics. No. And, uh, yeah, yeah. But I have a, a daughter is going in a few weeks mm-hmm. and I'm very proud that she's actually in a school that she's getting to take the classics. But mm-hmm. what I would say is that, that this is where my cynicism, I don't have a good answer because, because it, it, it left the university and infected the public sphere I have no idea how to fix it. Well, is the way to fix it the way, let's say, uh, Jordan Peterson um, or some of the others, or are they just sort of deemed on the right, nobody's listening to them on the left? Um, is there a way of of getting into these progressive circles and, and, and being heard? Or do we have to just, I, you know, I, also as a rabbi, I will tell you, I try to stay away from politics because um, – it's just very divisive, and I need to create a safe space for all, of course. You know, affiliations. You, I don't think rabbis should should wade into that. Except there are moral issues, you know, and it's not so simple. We can't keep quiet on moral issues. Um, well, and also because of Israel, you the first question yeah. you asked me was, yeah. and how does this relate to Israel? So you you're not you're not just a rabbi. You're a, a, a rabbi with a Jewish soul and heart. You wanted to see how does this in the end. How would it affect the Jewish people and the Jewish state? Uh, what I'm saying is the, the the progressive left is so hostile to Israel and so hostile to Jews. And no matter what they tell you, they have no distinction between Jews and Israel. It's all the same. Their, their hatred is the same, um, and it's it's very revealing. So I mean, so is is the answer to fight? to join the conservatives and fight against the liberals or is it, and I know they're really progressives and, but is, is that the approach? Um, because it just seems like the two sides are, are yelling at each other. No one's listening. Um, you know, is, 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 is there a way of, I don't know, somehow from within. There, there, there is a way, but I don't know how, this is more your job than mine. And here's the, here's the way, you know, I, for many years wrote for the New York times, the Los Angeles Times, Washington post, not so much. Now I write uh, essentially for the Jewish Journal, which I have a bi-monthly column, and occasionally for other Jewish-related publications. Uh, people say, why aren't you writing for the New York Times? And I say, well, two things. First of all, they're not interested in me anymore. Right. They, they're just not. I wrote six op-eds for them. They, wouldn't, they, could, they would never take another one from me. And secondly, they know that their readers would go insane. You know, <laughs> why would you publish that Zionist? You know, why would you publish him? Right. So, but so, they are, but they still have Brett Stevens who wrote a beautiful forward for your last book. Yeah. Well, Brett's a good friend and I hope he lasts. There. <laughs> I mean, as you know, yeah. uh, Barry Weiss did not. And I'm, I know right. Brett and I are close friends and I'm, I think of him every day. I want him to last there. Mm-hmm. But what I would say is when I say, I say, I, they say, well, but aren't you worried that you're preaching to the choir? And I say, no, I think there's not enough people in the choir. Mm-hmm. I actually think that's the problem. We're not mobilized as Jews. Most Jews are, if you ask them, quite, they're ignorant of Israel. Yeah. 
of politics. They don't under, they don't really know anything. And, and I think so, I'm thinking, I, what good could I possibly do with the New York Times other than to, to elicit anti-Semitic comments? What I wanna do is help the Jewish Journal get more readers and have more people reading me and others who can have much more informed conversations and protect their children from this, from this literally anti-Semitic pestilence that's in the broader culture. Jews need to fight back. They need to fight back with ideas. They need to fight back with funding. They need to support cultural institutions that are Jewish, newspapers that are Jewish. They have to fight back because otherwise this voice, this is the whole point. We were, we were never a majority. We were a very vocal minority. Right. And, and, and we have to continue to do that. Instead, what you're seeing is something else. You're seeing, uh, you know, tentativeness, meekness. Yeah, because you know, there's no, there's, you know, in my opinion, if I can just jump in, yeah. I, I heard Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory. Yeah. He was so big on Jewish pride. Yeah. He felt and he wrote that, that if you are proud to be a Jew, then you are going to yeah. re read a paper you know, like the, the, the papers yeah. you're writing for, if you're not, you're going to, you're going to see that kind of, you know, um, I just forgot the name of the actor, you know, that kind of meekness, yeah. making excuses and questioning oneself always. Um, if you look at a lot of the sitcoms that have Jews being portrayed, you know, they're all questioning their own Jewish identity. They're not proud. Well, that's and, I'm not, and I'm not saying you have to wear it on your sleeve and be like, you know, aggressive about it. Like, but um, there's a lack of Jewish pride. I mean, that's why I started MJE. It's all about yeah. inspiring people. Look yeah. at what Israel's doing. Look what Jews have done. Yeah. And, and and we should be, you know, we should be using our Jewishness to make the world a better place, not hiding it. Yeah, but, um, but, but let me just be clear about that. When I hear you say make a better place, I worry, oh, no, I, this is exactly <laughs> what reformed Jews want to hear, tikkun olam. Right. The, the worst thing that has ever happened in this in the, in this century, this new century is that I wish that word that phrase had never entered the public, <laughs> you know, conversation because Jews actually think it means not for Jews and not for myself. I know it's for others. It means that I and believe my social activism is directed elsewhere, never for my people and never for me. Here's an irony about this, Rabbi. We live in an age where everyone speaks of the politics of identity. And Jews are the only minority that are embarrassed by their identity. Everyone else is being told, right, that your identity is more important than your merit. It's wrong, right? right. It's more right. important than what you do. The only thing that matters, which is why you can blame white people, even though they have nothing to do with anything, just blame them because they're white. Identity is the key. That's how we've decided that's what's dangerous about what we're seeing in public education and in colleges, that we are rewarding people based on their identity, you know, and not based on their merit. Right. Again, what liberalism meant, right? I mean, to me, liberalism means openness and merit and free speech and free inquiry and the rule of law. These are things that are being lost in our culture. So I think that what's interesting to me is a real on, uh, irony is just at the time when minority groups are being told to celebrate difference and to celebrate the, po their, the, uh, their, the politics of their identity, Jews are the one that are struggling with their identity. They're embarrassed yeah. by their identity. Yeah. They're unsure of their identity. They think that their identity is tainted because it's too white, it's too wealthy, it's too privileged, it's too, it's too wrong. 
And so rather than saying, hey, this is an opportunity for there to be real sense of what you would say Jewish pride, because everyone is actually taking that position now, there's no melting pot. The melting pot concept is over, right? So, okay, well, if the melting pot concept is over, that means everyone is holding on to who they are. Okay, hold on, Jews. Hold on to who you are. And yeah, we're losing that. We're losing it. And I think, and I really appreciate this sort of call to action here because, you know, just to identify the problem, we're losing it because how can you expect people who are raised with such a minimal Jewish education and it distorted, in my opinion, like Tikkun Olam is a great example. Tikkun Olam is part of a verse in the Torah, the Takain Olam Malchut Shakai. So, okay, I don't want to mention because I don't like to say negative things about other denominations. I'm trying to keep it respectful, but you know, we just basically cut God out of the whole picture. Yeah, it's it's to perfect the world, to bring the world to a higher enlightened state. In, before God, which is why we were supposed to be chosen to perfect this world. And, uh, you know, Orthodox rabbis can't use the term anymore because it's been co-opted, but uh, it's a pasuk in the Torah. <laughs> it is a verse from the Bible. Yeah. And um, and the fact that, you know, you just said it so perfectly, the fact that it's come to denote taking care of everyone else than ourselves. Literally, but, but ourselves. Like, it, yeah. if you ask most people, that's what they would say. That it, it's it's the projection outward, nothing inward. There's nothing that there's nothing you need to care about yourself or your own people. There's nothing to repair there. Look, the, the, I for six years just to show you, you know, I have my liberal bona fides are as good as anybody. I for six mm -hmm. years I was the literary editor for Tikkun Magazine. People are shocked when they hear that because there's nothing there's nothing on the more left than Tikkun Magazine. It, it's right. it's. It, for six years, I were the, I was there. Wow. So I know I I know a lot about this mentality, but I know that the word even when when I was there in the late '80s and mid '90s, that the word tikkun, right? It was it was so interesting at that time. The what it meant to heal and repair was such a powerful word that it almost just took off. It took off, and you it it exploded. So you're right. It it starts from you know the Torah. But it was completely co-opted. It's co-opted, you know. To and say, I, I, to repair, I, to heal, yeah. is such a powerful theme. And the answer to that, if you're going to use a powerful word like that, it can't be for Jews. It no, has it, to be for other people to show how virtuous you are. I, I call mean, it more. I call it moral narcissism. <laughs> I love that. I'm writing that down. It is narcissism because it's not Judaism, and it's being masked as Judaism. I, I participated. This is at least 10 years ago in a interdenominational, Jewish interdenominational, conservative reform and uh, orthodox. And um, I was brought to Israel. We stayed at a beautiful hotel. And for 10 days, we sat with each other. It was just me, one other orthodox rabbi, and the rest were reform, conservative, reconstructionist. And it was really important for me to get a sense. And I really liked a lot of the people. But... It was basically American progressive liberalism being masked as Judaism. And I was trying to explain that to my colleagues, that what you're saying is great, it's wonderful, but there's no basis in classical Judaism for yeah. this claim. Mm -hmm. I, where Give me the verse, show me the passage in the Talmud, give me some biblical rabbinic source mm -hmm. for this, and, or, or just say there is no rabbinic biblical source. It's just what you grew up with, what you like, what your professors at university taught you, and you're a rabbi, so you're going to say it's in the name of Judaism. 
But that's essentially what these are the leaders now. Yeah. These are the leaders. There was literally one woman, I remember, one female rabbi, conservative rabbi, and she had spent six years studying Talmud at JTS at the Jewish Theological Seminary. She knew at least enough of the Talmud for us to have a conversation so that when she would make a claim to something, she felt the need to at least source it in something. And it wasn't just everyone else, I have to say, was like, and, and, you know, I, I, so then it, it was like, a, now I understand that these are the leaders. Yeah. These are leaders. Know, the, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead. I was, all I was going to say is that what they've done is replace text with, they confused text with Jewish history. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that, like, for instance, Jews were always the leaders of the civil rights movement throughout the civil rights movement until they're not, which is another reason there's something so shocking about the Black Lives attitude about Jews, or say, for instance, you know, uh, Louis Farrakhan, right? Because you're talking about a people who literally started the NCAA, uh, was started by Jews. The NCAA, the, uh, the Legal Defense Fund was started by Jews. The, 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 the Scottsboro boys were defended by a Jewish lawyer pro bono all the way to the Supreme Court. Why was that? That's because Jews came to this country with the freedom of this country, and they had Jewish empathy. Jewish empathy is different from what, you know, that's why to, to use the word tikkun olan makes it seem like a religious imperative. When it's not a religious imperative per se, what it is, it's something that Jews would naturally do because of our sensitivity to persecution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rav Salvechik writes exactly the way you said that. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that that's, it's a confusion. It's to turn it into something that's, not Jewish is a religion, but Jewish is a people, right? The Jews know from this. We know from exile. We know from slavery. We know from persecution. We know from you know various ways of being ostracized and excluded and you know demoralized and mistreated. We know this. So we naturally would gravitate to others who are similarly afflicted and say, let us help. Let us be part of that. I don't necessarily, the people in the 1960s that went on the freedom rides in Mississippi, if Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney, Cheney was African-American, Schwerner and Goodman were Jews. So the three civil rights workers that were killed in 1966, I think, two of of the three Jews, they didn't know what tikkun olam meant, Rabbi. No, (laughs) they were, were, as you said correctly, they were influenced, not necessarily, I mean, I don't know 100%, but probably influenced by you know, feeling yes. isolated themselves, feeling well, Goodman, anti-Semitism Goodman themselves. The, yeah, Goodman grew up on the Upper right. West Side, West End Avenue. Right. He was a Jewish kid from the Upper West Side. That's what yeah. he was influenced by. Right. Yeah, and, and by the way, Rev Salvatric wrote that the having begun as an enslaved people ourselves, Yes. why does the Torah keep mentioning Zechel Litziat Mitzrayim, remember the exodus from Egypt, I mean, we're obsessed with it, the Seder, and, and we have all these references during the year in our liturgy, because he believed that it developed a certain um, sensitivity and national consciousness for the oppression, for, for oppression, for people that are being oppressed and enslaved. And we have a natural tendency to want to help. Yeah, It's, it's just a question of, I, I think that whole issue of meritocracy is just... Um, it's it's disturbing. I want to. Um, we're, we're, it's getting a little late, but I want to ask you, as a professor, um, what what is what do you what's um, what do you love about it? <laughs> what what what's giving you hope 
and optimism in all of your years of teaching in academia? You know, I, I've just become so cynical, Rabbi, about this because, I, mm. it, you know, uh, if you ask most professors, thank God I'm in Turo, which is Jewishly affiliated. Right. If you ask most professors, they're terrified of their students. Uh, this is a terrible time to be a professor. Uh, they're terrified. They're terrified of anything that they say that would be considered politically incorrect or would be would require an apology. Uh, their students are waiting for this. This is the, 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 this is the conditions under which universities are being governed now. University presidents, everyone lives in fear of this movement. The New York Times capitulated to its own editors when it withdrew the op-ed from Tom Cotton. A United States senator had an opinion that was shared by nearly 70% of the entire country. And everyone on the staff that worked on that essay was either fired or reassigned, punished. Right? This, is the, this is the paper of record. This is, this, this is freedom of the press. Right. This is academic freedom. I can tell you, I was at and you, you didn't mention where I came. I was at NYU. Right. Yeah, I I, it, it was nothing but misery for me, utter misery. Uh, you know, uh, petitions to have me fired. Uh, you know, all every essay that I wrote that was pro-Israel was a problem. It was everything was a problem. Everything was. Well, nothing. I hope I hope God blesses you with the strength and the fortitude to stay in academia because you know. <laughs> I mean, what's the alternative if everyone like you leaves that world yeah. and it becomes com completely saturated with, um, I, I don't even know what to say, what the word is exactly. But, but, um, but Rabbi, the problem is the vast, the reason my situation was so horrendous is because the vast, vast, and I'm not being critical, I'm just telling you a fact, the vast, 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 vast majority of Jewish professors keep their head down. Right. I know that. They know they say that. nothing. They would never write anything that I write. They would it, never is, say is it, ju is it just self-preservation? They're going to lose their tenure? They're losing their tenure. They're also, I think, they're just life is too short. You know, life is too short to have to fight this thing out. Unless you, unless you become a Jordan Peterson, his, his career was pole vaulted. <laughs> you yeah. know, he became extraordinarily popular and successful because he stood up for his values. Yeah. You know, I, I always used to tell the joke. It's a Brooklyn joke, I guess. You know, this, the famous story of Pee Wee Reese when there was all the, uh, ant, uh, the uh, racism taught at, at um, baseball games at Jackie Robinson. And so this was, you know, every game that Jackie Robinson came, he was, you know, barraged by, you know, racism, vocal racism. And there's this really famous photo of Pee Wee Reese, who was a Southerner, Oh, yeah, I know this. I and saw he, the movie 42. I remember oh, this. Yeah. And he, put, he just stands and puts his arm around Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson's, what are you doing? He said, just, you know, just taking in the sights, you know, and it was clear what he was doing. This is my guy. Right. I, I, I have not had any Pee Wee Reese. Not one. Not even a, nothing like that. And it I'm must just be saying, very, must be yeah, very lonely. Not one. And that's why I left Turo where I wanted, I knew in my lifetime, I'm now 61. Is there, is, it, is there an association of professors that could band together? I cannot believe there, that there, in every there, university, there isn't one, two, or three yeah. that feel the same way that you do that can create yeah. some sort of... No, 
There is a, there's a group called the Academic Engagement Network. I was one of the early founders of it. When we had our very first meeting in Washington, D.C., uh, I was the youngest person there. Everybody needed was senior and almost right. retired. Nobody who, had, who was thinking about a career. I think there was one young woman who was from like, Illinois. There was, it was so telling that, you know, the academic, and they're, they're still out there, they're called AEN, Academic Engagement Network. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's utter misery. So I, I just think that I don't know how to get us out of it, but I do know that there is, there is that's when I said before, the real answer is not preaching to the choir, it's to enlarge the choir. I feel right. very strong about that. I feel like mm -hmm. the problem is that we don't have a choir. We think we have a choir. We don't. Because we have a and, choir, you, and, and, and you there'd be a Pee Wee Reese. There'd be right, people. but and and when you say you want to enlarge the choir, I mean that would include college students. Yes, right. You you don't want to cede that, you know, um, territory, if you will, on, yes. on, on college yes. campus and just leave it for those reading the Jewish papers. Yeah. Well, the problem is, look, the as you point out, in the humanities in particular, and there are far too many Jews that are at the forefront of the anti-Israel movement and are at the forefront of a sort of hating whatever is white. And yeah, but this is not, right, this is not really a Jewish issue, though. This really goes beyond the Jewish community. Yes. This is about it's about liberalism. liberalism yeah. It's about liberalism. Yeah. This is why when people say, you know, I am a liberal. I'm, I'm holding a stand. I'm, I'm fighting uh, uh, to uphold a standard of liberalism. It just so happens, Rabbi, that Jews thrive in liberal culture. Right. <laughs> That we've right. all, we always do well when we're in, you know, it, remember in Holland in the 18th century, right? When in the Enlightenment showed up, Jews became cosmopolitans of, 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 of Amsterdam, right? They were the big supporters of Rembrandt. It's just typical. This is exactly what Jews do. I've written this before. Wherever Jews are, if you let them be Jews, it's going to be a much more interesting place. Of course. You well, want, we have you so want much, to live in a more yeah. interesting place? Invite Jews and let them be Jews. And you see, you'll see better fashion, better restaurants, better music, better culture, better books. Let them be Jews. But what we've done is we've created a culture where we're suffocating liberalism, which is the oxygen for Jews. I love this tagline. You know, let my people go. Let them be Jews. You got to do something with that. I just wrote that down. Good. People are not, people are not, it's about pride, I think. And I think it's also about just, yeah, it, it's the white privilege. And, and I mean, it's the only way to explain, by the way, the recent spike in anti-Semitism and the absolute silence of political leaders and others. Everybody's quiet. I mean, when there was a spike in Asian uh, violence, th there was a real outcry, as there should have been. There was, this, um, there was an indication of this years ago, not long ago. Sorry to interrupt you, but I knew yeah. you would love this next anecdote I was going to give you because you'll use it, believe me. Uh, there's, it's out, I think it's out of Oberlin. There was a professor in Oberlin that was quoted as saying, we should not be teaching courses in the Holocaust because that's only white-on-white -white crime. It's a quote. Oh, you can go look it up. Think about oh it. White-on-white -white crime doesn't count. It doesn't count. Bad things that happen to white privileged Jews are no concern of anybody that sees themselves as progressive. It's and, and either the, deserved or it doesn't matter. 
I, I always thought, and I guess I'm wrong, or maybe things are changing, that if the Holocaust was that, you know, um, at least in this the 20th century, that was the Jewish, you know, that's what we would hold up and to, to, to be connected with whatever other oppressed group. And you're saying that that is because um, it's white on white crime. It doesn't, doesn't count. count. It doesn't count. And, and I, I thought you were going to say, you know, I thought the Holocaust, you know, we we all learned our lesson. You know, there was a time oh, in, the that, yeah. Yeah, in the 1990s, you know, the Holocaust was hot. It was everywhere. Movies. There was a museum in Washington. There was Yom HaShoah. I mean, I was I was busy right. on Yom HaShoah. You know, we don't do that anymore. People, this is a you know an anecdote. For oh, but what's interesting, though, I will tell you. Just this is anecdotal. I've been doing Yamashoa programming for twenty five years already. Mm -hmm. um, it is. It still somehow uh, garners. Like we we reach out to twenties and thirties that are unaffiliated or less affiliated, and we try to get. Yeah, they show I'm up happy. more for this than Zionism stuff. Yeah, well, that was the other thing that people complained about in the 90s. Rabbis complained and others that said, Yiddishists complained, that said that we have a, only a Holocaust-centric view of Judaism. Yeah, yeah. That we're not interested in Yiddish culture, we're not interested in Jewish day schools, we're just interested. People's sense of Jewish identity is driven by the Holocaust. I, I, I well, agree. Yeah, I'm saying, I you know, so I, I think that that was not an unfair criticism. I'll give you a really great anecdote that I almost never give away. It's from well, something Elie Wiesel told me, but didn't write. I always wondered why I didn't write it. He said to me once, you know, the survivors made a big mistake. And I said, what, what, what was that? He said, they should have said nothing. And I said, what do you mean, Ellie? And he said, he said, they should have said nothing. And he said, instead of telling people what happened and writing books and doing interviews, they should have said nothing. And it would have driven the world insane with curiosity and it would have had a longer lasting effect than what we would eventually have is a Holocaust fatigue where Holocaust oh, wow. became kitsch, right? That it became kitsch. It became a joke for Larry David or for Seinfeld that instead what we thought would work actually would end up backfiring. And you are seeing, you know, emanations mm -hmm. of that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, soccer games throughout Europe in which, you know, Desecrations of Anne Frank, uh, you know, uh, hissing at soccer. You know, the, this thing hissing means uh, uh, hissing means uh, Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. You know, hissing oh, is really? supposed to be the, the the sound of gas. So there's I forgot which team. I think it's uh, Ajax in Holland. They're considered the Jewish team, even though there's no Jews. It's because the team was started by Jews and they had a Jewish coach in the 1920s. But there's a great anecdote you could read about Ajax, Ajax that they had trouble, wherever they go, the crowds were rowdier because it brought out anti-Semitism. Wow. It brought out this hissing, and the hissing was supposed to be the sound of gas. Chilling. It's very chilling. That's a powerful line that's, I mean, he was a spokesperson for the yes. show. For, for there's him. the paradox, right? He, he's saying, we made a mistake, as if I made a mistake. I should have never written night. The implications of what he's saying he, he, he ended up writing 50 books. Not all were about the Holocaust, but, but you know, he, was, he won a Nobel Prize, among other things, for Holocaust memory, right? Yeah. He was the leading face of Holocaust memory. But yeah. Yeah. He, he looked at this at one point in the late 90s and concluded, 
I don't know if this is a good thing. It may wow. end up becoming kitsch. Unbelievable. Well, I hope um, I hope you will continue to teach, <laughs> and I hope you will continue to write. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> and, and gain more and more adherence, and that people will listen, well, thank and you. that we will we will see a, a more of a return to openness and the kind of liberalism that you have lived your whole life and are preaching. I don't, I don't say that in a negative way. And by the um, way, your, your mentor, Daniel Boyne, Patrick Moynihan, to me was the embodiment of liberalism, oh, the embodiment, you know, on every level, everything that he stood for, everything that he did, everything that he said. You know, here's something I don't know if you remember in the 1960s, he and Nathan Glazer wrote books as sociologists that took a critical look at welfare and welfare and poverty programs. And people accused them. He, uh, Nathan Glazer was Jewish. Point Moynihan, as you know, is Irish Catholic, right? This guy that ended up becoming the, the American ambassador to the United Nations and the United States Senate was accused of, of racism in the 1960s. Why? Because he was an open thinker, right? He was thinking openly about how can we deal with poverty? And he was opening up the conversation. You know what? who yeah. does that? Liberals. Yeah. They opened up yeah. the conversation. He was he was a great man, and please God, you know I'm 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 just hoping, you know, sort of the pendulum of cancel culture will swing back, but I I don't think it's going to go back on its own. I think we need advocates like you to point out the problem, get people to see that we're not listening to each other. Uh, I think it's and terribly unhealthy for young men and women. You know, you have a situation where liberals are Democrats won't date uh, Republican people just don't want to be in the same like so I'm I stay away from it this was actually probably the most political interview I've ever done and <laughs> thankfully thankfully I had I, you I, to, hope, I hope that was had, okay <laughs> no it was excellent because I had you to converse with so I appreciate it and I want to thank you Thane for forgiving us of your time I want to mention to everyone that if you would like to um, follow uh, Thane his articles have appeared in nearly every publication also the Wall Street Journal his, your website is thanerosenbaum.com. And um, how else can people find out and read uh, some of your books? Um, go to rosenbaum.com and read his columns in the Jewish Journal and some other, any other publications they can, they can read. Well, I mean, I, if you do a Google search, you'll find everything. So, I okay. Mean, I, okay, good. I, so you, but thank you, Mark. Thank you. Yeah, Robert. 100%. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. And, and I think what you're doing is. Really, you know, this is exactly what, in my mind, rabbis should do. You know, open up the pulpit, you know, give it more air and bring people in in a different way. And this is the outreach, especially to younger people, is not just a mitzvah. It's a moral, yeah. it's a moral imperative. And I really think you should really, your children should be proud of what you're doing. It's an extraordinary achievement because this is a, this is a moral imperative. I, I thank you, and uh, and I am optimistic. Uh, maybe I have a self-selective group that comes to MGE, but I find my students very open-minded. They want to hear another perspective. I think people want to. We just have to make it more acceptable. I think for more and more people to do that. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Rabbi. and uh, we will uh, continue to be in touch. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. 
If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.